Good morning, Redemption Tempe. All right, slightly more enthusiasm than most nine o'clocks, but you guys are doing good. Uh, My name is Jim Mullins. I'm one of the pastors here, uh, here at Redemption Tempe, where we seek to make disciples who live all of life, all for Jesus. And um, this morning, I'm going to give a few announcements before Ricardo comes up and teaches. Uh, First of all, I wanted to start off with a, a special event that we're doing. On August 7th, here in this room, at, um, at 6 p.m., we're bringing in a special speaker named Dale Keene. Now, he is an expert in, in sexuality and is a consultant all over the world. He's written a book called Sex and the Eye World, Rethinking Relationships Beyond an Age of Individualism. He's a pastor, he's a professor, he's very sharp, and we wanted to bring him in here to discuss topics of, of sexuality, and of relationships in the 21st century. We really encourage you to be there. It's not going to be a first Wednesday or like a first Wednesday. Uh, We're partnering with Arcadia, and we're going to pack this room out. But we really would like you to come on uh, Wednesday, August 7th at 6 p.m. in here. There won't be food, there won't be child care, but there will be some good stuff to come and listen to. So we'd encourage you to come there. Um, And also this morning, we're going to continue with the All of Life interviews. We've been doing these interviews as a way to not just tell you about living life all for Jesus, but actually to show you people who are doing it. And we've had different people. We had a microbiologist. We had an accountant. And this week, we have an artist. So let's welcome up Autumn Farrell, and she'll come up and we'll ask her a few questions. All right. Welcome to the stage. Thank you. All right. Well, first off, Autumn, why don't you start off by telling us what you do? Um, Well, I'm an artist, and um, I mostly do things uh, by hand. So um, that means, like, hand lettering. Um, It's kind of like design, but not on the computer. Um, I make everything with my hands. That's great. That's great. Well, as an artist, and some of your art is up there, so you guys can see that. As an artist, uh, what does it look for you to glorify God through the work that you do? Well, um, we serve a creative God. Um, He's the ultimate creator. Um, He has ultimate originality. So um, as also a creative person, um, I get to reflect that aspect of him, um, knowing full well that anything that I create um, is not going to be ultimately original because only God can do that. But um, I just get to reflect a part of that. So um, he often, you know, just inspires things, whether that means like inspiring a specific piece or just your creativity in general. Um, and also, you know, God really values um, excellence in what you do and taking the skills he's given you and um, really just, like, using them well. So um, I try to do that every day, um, just get better and better at, like, honing my craft. That's great. Now, Jesus calls us to love our neighbor. How does an artist love their neighbor? Um, well, as a freelance artist, um, I get to work with a lot of different people, um, Christians and non-Christians alike. So, um, and these people are super creative people a lot of times who have these really great ideas, um, but they don't have like the hand abilities or, um, maybe the computer skills or something to, to make them come to life. So, um, I get to serve them in that way and help them, um, you know, take these really great ideas and make them reality. Um, and also just like the way that you interact with clients a lot of times can speak to, um, your belief in God. Um, so I try to treat everybody with, um, with like respect and, um, try to deliver to them, um, you know, my best skills. Um, and hopefully that speaks to, um, what I believe. That's great. That's great. How can we pray for you, other artists, other designers, those types of folks? 
Um, well, for me specifically, just uh, that I'm able to uh, just glorify God with the abilities that I've been given, um, and that goes for all artists and designers as well. Um, and then also, uh, we can just be praying for all the artists and designers in our community that um, we don't fall into the trap of um, defining ourselves by what we do, um, the quality of our work, the quantity of our work, how many people see it, things like that, um, but that we're first um, secured in who we are in, in Christ and um, that we work out of that so that uh, we know we're loved and valued, and then because of that, we can create beautiful work that's excellent and that glorifies God. That's great. That's great. Now, if you are an artist or if you design anything or if, even if you're not a paid professional artist but it's something that you really care about, would you go ahead and raise your hand real quick? And we're going to go ahead and pray for you and for Autumn because we really care about the work that you do and believe that God has sent you into that uh, sphere. So let's pray. Father, I thank you for the artists in our community. We thank you that they serve a God and are made in the image of a God who created. And we thank you for the overwhelming creativity that you demonstrate to us every day through your creation. And we pray for our artists that they would reflect that that they would also reflect the self-giving love of Christ in the way that they serve others. We pray that you would, uh, that you would bless them so that they would be a blessing to others. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Are right, you guys thank him again. All right. Uh, we're going to jump right into Romans. Uh, just in case you're the first time here, my name is Ricardo. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, we have been tracking through the book of Romans for several weeks now, and we're going to continue in wrapping up chapter 3 this morning. And so if you have a Bible, turn to Romans chapter 3. We'll be looking at verses 27 through 31. Again, that's Romans chapter 3, 27 through 31. If you don't have a Bible, Raise your hand and keep it raised high, and then someone will be able to get you a copy of God's Word that you can have to read, to understand, and to grow in. If you do not own a Bible, please keep the copy that we were handing out this morning so that you can have it and, and grow in an understanding of, of God's Word and His love for us and His Son, Jesus. So let me just kind of recap a little bit where we were last week. Um, when we Last two weeks have been Paul unpacking the gospel. And that is the good news of Christ Jesus, that God himself left the comforts of heaven in the person and work of Christ. He came to this world to live a life that we should have lived and died the death that we should have died. What we saw last week is that he did this for us um, freely, apart from us, that we only enter into this relationship with God, not by birth, but by faith. And so we are not naturally children of God. We do not naturally reach out to God. But God, in his love for us, he reaches out to us. And the way that he satisfies his justice, which is the nature of God that has to execute punishment on sin, but then his love for sinners, which is the nature of God that desires that we be justified, is through the cross of his son, Jesus. And so Jesus comes for us to be a substitute. That he, that he gives us his life so we have righteousness, not in ourselves, but a righteousness that has been given to us from Christ. And we have the love of God now. No need to fear his wrath because all of the wrath and anger of God towards our sin was sovereignly placed and lovingly placed by God and his son Jesus on our behalf. And so that was the good news that we've been unpacking. And so now Paul gets to the very end of chapter 3. And he begins to wrap up uh, talking about the gospel and, and communicating its implications. Meaning that when we believe the gospel, that it's not just a one-time profession in which we make a profession to, to say we love Jesus because he first loved us. But it's an ongoing lifestyle in which we live in. 
And so for the many of us in this room that would say that we are Christians, it's faith in Christ Jesus and letting that faith permeate every single thing that we do um, with our hands, with our mind, with our intellect and our will. And so what Paul begins to unpack for us uh, this morning in these few verses is that there is a quality that the gospel brings in all people who believe in Jesus. And every single person that has faith in Jesus, that there's a quality that should be there. And that quality is humility. And, and humility is, is one of those qualities that we love it in other people. We see it in other people. We desire it. It's intriguing. But it's something that we never feel like we have in ourselves. And if we ever did think we had it in ourselves and we said it, we'd kind of lose it by saying it, right? There's only one person that I've ever heard that, that said that they were humble, that I actually believed them. And, and, and I don't know if you ever read through the book of Numbers, but in the book of Numbers, um, it says that Moses was the most humble man in all the world, right? Well, let me just tell you, um, just in case you didn't know, Moses wrote the book of Numbers, right? And it, which has always kind of been weird. It's like, he's like, he's like, and Moses was the most humble man in all the world, right? And the reason why I believe him is because it's inspired by God. So God was like, yeah, he's kind of right. You know, he's kind of right. Everyone else who tells me I'm a really humble person, you know, it's like, really, did you just say that? You shouldn't have said that you lost it. And, but, but we love it when we see it in other people. And not just when we see it in other people, we love it when we see it in organizations. In fact, many of you guys are leaders and you're leader, leaders in organizations and companies. And so you've probably read the book, Good to Great by Jim Collins. Uh, it was one of the best sellers. And what Jim Collins sought to do is say, there are companies that are good and there are companies that are great. What makes a company go from being good to being great? And so what he did is he went on an adventure to, to survey some of the top uh, companies and organizations in all the world. And it was interesting when he found what he found. And one of the things that he found about companies that were great is that at the very top, whoever their leader was, that that leader possessed a great deal of humility. And so we even see that humility transcends not just personally, but it goes into the marketplace, that these companies were great because there was a great deal of leadership and their leadership that was humble. Um, it's the reason why people that believe in God or don't believe in God are drawn to the new pope. That when they see the new pope and they see that he doesn't want to live in luxury, that he wants to catch taxis and whatnot, they're drawn to him. There's something about humility. Um, a, a couple years ago, there, I got a call from a pastor who uh, was a pastor at a church similar to ours in Texas and said, hey, I got this guy. He's moving out to Arizona. He's looking for a place to kind of um, worship for just a season, um, just for a few weeks. Can he come to your guys' church? And I said, yeah, usually we don't let people come to our church, but yeah, we'll let him come this time, right? <laughs> what question is that? <laughs> and, uh, and, and so he comes, and he comes to my community, and it just happened to be that there was a family in our congregation, at the Gilbert congregation, actually, who had lost a child. And the grandmother was having um, people over that were coming in from all all over the, 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 the country to visit them. And her backyard was huge, but it was a mess. And she needed people to come help clean it up. And, and this guy showed up and everybody in our community just kind of worked with him. And he served and, and served hard. Didn't know this family, didn't know anyone in our community, barely knew me. And then six months later, we found out that he was a starting linebacker for the Arizona Cardinals, right? Like, it's like, oh, you're pretty important, right? And we, but there was something that drew us to that when we found out. Because there's a guy who could have said, no, I, I'm a, I don't do that. I'm, an, I'm a professional football player. There's something of humility that it, we're, we're drawn to it um, professionally. We're drawn to it personally. And we're drawn to it spiritually. When we look at Jesus, the God of this universe, the second person of the Trinity, and we read about him clearly in Philippians that he humbled himself even to death and death on a cross. And that's where we ended last week. 
is that he died on a cross and he was raised from the dead. This is, this is God himself who enters into our lives, enters into our narrative in order to redeem it. Well, there's something that when people place their faith in that God, that when the gospel begins to permeate our lives, that it should, it ought to begin to produce in us, bring in us humility. And what, what Paul shows here is not just humility in a broad sense, but in three areas of what Paul unpacks for us, is that the gospel should bring humility in our identity. That means in our, in our, who we are as a, as a being in our identity. It brings humility in our witness, how we proclaim this Jesus in whom we love. And then also brings humility in our holiness, how we live for him in our obedience. And so the gospel brings humility in our identity and our witness and our holiness. First, Brings identity, it brings humility in our identity. Verse 27, Paul says, What becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By the law of works? No. By the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Well, let me just give you some context again. Paul right now, this argument, this conversation that he's having, he's having with Jewish people in the first century in the Roman Greco world. These Jewish people may have been Christians now, they may have believed in Jesus, or may have not. And Paul's argument is, when it comes to this context, is you have to understand, the Jewish people, most of them, were placing their identity on the fact that they were God's people. Like, that's a good thing. That's a really good thing that your identity is placed on the fact of who you belong to. However, it was getting diluted because they were adding not just who God is and what God has done, but they were adding to it the law. What, what Moses had said, and so they were finding their identity by their ability to obey the law. Um, they were finding their identity in things if they were circumcised or not. And so essentially, the teaching had been and should be that we are saved by God through grace, um, by, like, by grace working through faith. And the way that most Jewish people who didn't really understand the gospel, the way that they got it is they believed God saved, but the way that he worked was not through faith, but was through grace. And he was very cultural, he was very ethnic, very ethnocentric. And so if you were going to be a part of God's family, and if you weren't Jewish, then at least you had to act Jewish. In fact, that's what all of Galatians is all about. When Paul begins to talk to the, what they're called Judaizers in, in the church of Galatia, he's saying, wait a minute, you're adding things to the gospel. And when you begin to add things to the gospel, you no longer have a gospel. And he says, that's, that's in that context, he says, what becomes of our boasting? Because this is what he's saying. When you place your identity on anything other than the saving nature, the life, death, and resurrection of Christ Jesus, then you've lost the gospel. You've lost your, 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 the reason of which God created you and redeemed you for. Meaning when you place your value on anything else, your identity on anything else it's other than the gospel, it will fail you. And it's harmful, not just for you personally, but even for the people around you. And, and we all do it. We all do it, Christian and non-Christian alike, that we find there's certain things in which we place our identity on. It, it may not be law, or it may be circumcision, maybe, I don't know, I don't know you guys. Um, it, it, could, it could be some other things, right? Some of us, we place our value and our identity, our purpose, right, in education. And so it's how many degrees do we have and how smart we are in our intellect, how we can just tear people down with how much we know and our knowledge. And especially in a city like ours where we have a major university that many of us, um, we probably have more people in our congregation that have at least a college degree than probably all of our congregations. 
just by the nature of where we are. And so that knowledge can puff up and we can place our identity on that. Listen, I'm not saying that knowledge is bad, but when you place your identity on it, it's not, it's not good. That's not who you are. Some of us, we do it with um, what we do for a living, whether it be work, whatever vocation we have. Autumn just said it here. She said, you know what a prayer request could be? Is that as artists, us artists, that, uh, a prayer request could be is that, is, is that we don't find our identity in what we do. We find our identity in who God is. Right? There, there, we, we do it. We do it relationally. Uh, many of us, we, we find our identity in our, in our parents and our children. We want our children to obey a certain way or our ability to protect them. And we, we find our, our identity or trying to find our identity in our spouse or our future spouse. We're hoping one day that God brings this guy or God brings this gal. We've been praying for him to, to come in maybe today, maybe not. Right? There's, there's, there's a sense there. And in some cases, like many of the Jewish people, it becomes race. It becomes their ethnic and their culture, their ethnicity and their culture. Here's the problem about that. When you begin to place your, your value, your identity on that, you take good things, but you make them the most important things, is it creates human divisions. Human divisions, meaning if you believe that somehow your race is who you are, that that's the most important things about you, chances are because of your race has to be elevated, then everybody else will seem inferior to you. And that's how racism is started. If you, put, um, if you put education or even your ability to work hard, right? That's a good American value, your ability to work hard, which is a good thing. But if that becomes your identity because you just want to be known as someone who works hard, well, guess what? You're going to just have a, a great disdain for people who are lazy. If your identity is in working out and being healthy, then when you see people who are, who are not working out and are unhealthy, you're, gonna, you're, gonna, you're just going to just, they're going to be in fear to you. When, when you, when, relationally, if you feel like parenting is your deal and the way that you parent is the best way, the way you, you, you choose to educate your kids is the best way, when you see somebody else doing it a different way, you're going you're gonna to have to look down. It becomes a division. Not only is there human divisions in there, but it becomes a denial. It, it, for instance, in race, what happens is if you're very ethnocentric and that's who you are, what happens is you begin to overlook some of the issues and some of the flaws in your own culture, just like the Jewish people were doing. Um, if, if it becomes uh, something of um, relationships, right, if it's parents, if it's children, if it's a spouse or a future spouse, what happens, and we see this, is that there are kids to this day that are adults, like grown people that still make excuses for their parents and that are still crippled by the fact that they didn't get the proper acceptance that they desired from their family. It cripples them. There are parents today who have grown kids that are still living their lives through their kids and still making excuses for their kids like, oh, I don't understand. Look, he's, he's only 35. Do you think he should have a job already? Yeah, we do, right? Or what happens is you, you begin to have this denial over who they are, and so you make excuses for them, and you never have what we would call tough love. You never can be honest with them. You, you, you don't point out things that are issues. Um, people find themselves in very toxic, toxic relationships, and they just say, he's like that because the way he was, he was brought up. There's no understanding of just being, having the courage to speak into things where things are off and wrong. It, it produces self-denial if it's morality. Many of us in this room, we want to live as good Christians. We want to see the imperatives of Scripture, and we want to live them out, and we want to be known as people who live lives for Jesus, and that's a good thing. But when that becomes the main thing, when your obedience becomes the main thing of who you are, not, who, not about God and what he's done, you will deny your sins. You will overlook it. You won't confess it. 
Because if you confess your sin, that means there's a flaw. There's something wrong. That means that, that your, your center of, of who you are, which is supposed to be a really good Christian, um, is, 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 is not going to be perceived well. So you hide your sin. That all, all of these happens when we, when we boast. When we boast or we find ourselves, our, a center, our center ourselves around anything other than Christ. Now, when Paul uses this word boasting, this is more than just bragging. I mean, this is a, a psychological, spiritual concept, I mean, at the core of your being. But he says it doesn't have to be that way. In fact, Paul is asking rhetorical questions. He goes, where, where is your boasting? Like, where, where could it be? Like, basically what Paul is saying is there, there can't be boasting. Because when you understand the gospel, that you have received something freely by grace, something that you didn't do, that you have a security. And so when you understand that Christ has done all that you couldn't do on your behalf and you receive it by faith, that, that you just walk into it, then he, then he says that that should be your confidence. And now you can look at every single thing else. You can look at your work. You can look at your location. You can look at your relationships in, proper perspect, um, um, in a proper perspective. Meaning, um, if you have self-denial because you find yourself wanting just to be a good Christian and therefore you can't confess sin openly and you can't be honest about yourself because criticism absolutely tears you apart in the gospel, that's not the case. Because though when people criticize you, 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 it may hurt you a little bit. You may not like it, but you realize that all people are doing is helping you understand more and more the death of God's love. Because you realize that when you see the depths of your sin, you can see the height of his love for you. That criticism is not something that absolutely makes you a failure. It's something that draws you near to the love of God. You, 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 take, you take other things. That you can be honest with people who you love. And that when they make mistakes or sin against you, you don't, can, you don't just excuse them of sin. But you actually look at them and say, here's what, there's issues that you have in your life that can make you more courageous. Or what we have struggling with our congregation, especially a larger congregation where many people are not married yet and desire to have a spouse one day and they're wondering, what is my future going to look like? What kind of job am I going to have? Where am I going to live? That you can trust God with your future. Look at when you have an identity that comes from the gospel, you, you, you can have humility in that. You can trust God with your future. And you say, how can we trust God with our future? Because oftentimes when you place your identity in anything else, it's about you. You want to control it and you can control it. But when you realize that you were saved by grace, you realize it's completely in God's hands. And that means you have to trust him. And what many of us don't know is God is for us. Like, God is for you. For the past couple weeks, we've been unpacking that God himself left the comforts of heaven to come to die on a cross for you. And so we know we can trust God with our future because look at the great lengths in which he went to to, for us to be his children. That he cares about us. It may not be the future that we want. But we can trust that it's the future that we need because he's our God. Paul, Paul is saying this is what happens when you are not justified by your obedience. When you're not justified by your children's obedience. That you're not justified by your looks or your beauty. Which I've said before, to me, when people are boastful on how good looking they are, that's like the worst thing ever. Because at least like when you've, like, you know, you've, you've in your company and you've worked hard, you can go, yeah, you kind of did some stuff. You didn't do anything to look good right? You just came out into this world and was like, dang, you look good, right? You didn't do nothing for that. And people were like, hey, you know, like, <laughs> it is what it is, right? It's like, no, it's stupid. <laughs> I just have prejudices against good-looking people. I can repent of that right now. So, <laughs> Paul says this when he continues. He says, what is our boasting? He says, it is excluded, meaning there should be no boasting. But what kind of law? Let me explain that to you. When he says what kind of law, he's not talking about the law of Moses. It could be best translated, what principle? Like, what principle? 
Is it the principle of works or the law of works? He says, no, it's not what you do, but it's the law of faith or the principle of faith who you rest in. For we are told that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. What he's saying is your identity, who you are, could never change in Christ Jesus. We said this last week, and we'll say it again, that nothing you can do can make God love you any more, and there's nothing that you can do to make God love you any less. If you want to have confidence, if you want to have security, you're completely secure in the love and the work of Christ Jesus. And when you understand that you did nothing, all you could do is sit back and be thankful. That, that brings humility in that because you don't go around boasting in what you do. Even when you make something that's beautiful, even when you have a successful deal at work, you, say, you don't say, oh, I had this because I'm a Christian, right? Sometimes people think that's what ministers say. It's like, oh, this guy's really good at work because he's a Christian. No, we have a lot of Christians that can't be artists. Just because you're a Christian doesn't mean you learn how to paint. No, but if you already have those gifts as a believer in Christ, you realize you're justified that those things don't make you or break you. Those are gifts in which God has given you to use to bring glory to his name. And so you can trust that all of those things, all the talents that I have, these are from God. I'm justified. My standing in itself is completely freely given to me by God, and I receive it freely only by faith. Amen? That, that should produce in us humility because God did it. I mean, just think about that, right? If you um, go to a restaurant that you like, or you go to a museum and you see a painting that you like, or you watch a sporting event and, and it's amazing a sporting event, or you listen to a song, right? You ever notice that when you enjoy something that you receive, you never boast about yourself, right? Like no one ever goes to a restaurant and goes, hey, what restaurant do you recommend? Oh, this restaurant I went to was really good. Why? Because my taste buds are awesome, right? <laughs> like no one immediately just goes, oh, because of me, right? That just, that doesn't usually happen. When you see something that inspires you, you see something that moves you, when you see something of, of incredible beauty, you begin to talk about that thing or the one who did it, right? No one goes and sees a big painting and go, is that amazing painting? Yeah, because of my eyes, right? No, no, no one says that. It's the person who painted it. When you understand the gospel, that brings humility and you begin to make much of Jesus in who you are. Your identity, you have a humble identity. There's humility in it. And not only do you begin to make much of Jesus, like any good restaurant that you go to, you begin to tell your friends about it. You need to get in on this. Any good movie you've seen, you say, you got to watch this movie. It was riveting. It was amazing. And in the same way that if you truly love Jesus and he's done all that Paul has said that he's done on your behalf and you believe him by faith, you would desire for people to get in on it. And so that not only does Paul communicate that the gospel brings humility in our identity, but it should bring humility in our witness. Meaning we should desire to tell people to get in on it. But what happens is our, our witness is not that humble. Have you ever heard someone begin to talk about Jesus and it sounds like the most arrogant thing that you've ever heard? Um, that I, I believe that happened to me when I first became a Christian. Not to say it doesn't happen anymore, but when I first became a Christian, I felt like God just blew up my life, right? And that was like the language I, I could describe as like God came in, pow, right? And then just my life changed. And what happens is um, because of the life that I was living, and I've shared this before, because of my particular sins that God began to deal with, and I wasn't doing these particular sins anymore as much, and, and, and from there, 
I begin to go to my friends. And the way evangelism or the way that I would witness God would be telling them things like, hey, looks like you're smoking weed. Hey, you should stop smoking weed. I used to smoke weed. I believe in Jesus. I don't smoke weed anymore. You should stop doing it, right? I'd go, hey, looks like you're, you know, you're, you know, doing things you shouldn't be doing sexually. It looks like you're sleeping with your girlfriend. Hey, guess what? I used to do that. I don't do that anymore because I love Jesus. You should stop doing that. And that's what, like, evangelism was for. That's how I did it. And that's how some of us do it. We do it with our family members. We see our family members that don't love Jesus or our coworkers making a mess out of their life, and we get it. There's a lot of actions that are just destructive, whether you believe in God or not. And what we do is say, stop this, don't do this, fix this, change that, wear this, stand up straight, because I love Jesus. And implicitly what we're communicating is, if you want to become a Christian, you need to be like us. That, that, that basically your life is wrong because you're not acting like us. That's why many people that don't believe in Jesus, when they think about Christianity, they say it just seems so exclusive. It, it seems like there has to be some sort of order. I need to change. I need to fix myself in order before I come before the Lord. And I don't want to do those things. And so it seems exclusive. Now, let, let, let me be clear here. Um, there are certain people that when they hear the teachings of Christ... And when they hear the teachings of scripture, that they will buck up against it. When Jesus himself walked this earth, there were people who heard him and said, no way, never, don't believe in it, I'm out. You say that you are the way and the only way, I'm out. There are going to be people that when they hear the gospel, Paul Paul says, it's going to be a stumbling block. In fact, he said to the Jewish culture, they're looking for power. And so the cross seems weak. And he says, into the Roman Greco world, they're looking for wisdom. And a savior on the cross looks dumb. But to those who believe in Christ Jesus, it's both the power and the strength and the wisdom of God. And so he says, don't put a stumbling block. Let the gospel be the stumbling block. And so if we preach Christ and Christ alone and people say, I reject it, that's one thing. But when our actions and our morality begin to supersede the presentation of the life, death, and resurrection of Christ, it's no longer humble. It's about you and it's about me. Look how good I am. Look how, look how moral I am. How come you can't be that moral? And that's what it communicates to people. We, we, we have these things where we lead with imperatives and not indicatives. And you say, what, what do you mean? We, we lead with things that are biblically true, that we ought to be doing. But we leave out what God has done. So we maybe start with what people should do. And we have all these rules that we've added to it as well. The Jewish people had it. We, we said their biggest thing was circumcision, and especially for Jewish Christians. And that's Paul, Paul's major argument in Galatians is that they were trying to get Jew, Gentile people to say, if you're going to worship God, you've got to become a Jew. Like you've got to be circumcised and you've got to adhere by these things. We, we, we do that too. We do it with things like, hey, if you want to become a Christian, you need to stop drinking. If you want to become a Christian, you need to stop listening to rap. You need to stop wearing baggy clothes. You need to take those earrings out. You need to get rid of your tattoos unless they say for Jesus. And you say you had them before you were a Christian, right? Like we, there's, there's things. There, you need to stop sleeping with your boyfriend. You need to stop sleeping with your girlfriend. You need to clean up your language and so forth. And, and some of you are going, wait, some of those things are biblical, right? Doesn't the Bible say not to listen to rap? <laughs> Only in the church I grew up in. <laughs> some of those things are biblical. Some of those things are, like, explicit. But what we fail to get to is Jesus. If you, if you could just step back and remember how God saves, and more personally, how God saved you. Did, did God save you because he came to you and says, here's some things I want you to get done first, and if you kind of can get through this, maybe 70% of it, I'll be able to accept you? No. 
that the gospel came in your life in the same way it came in my life. I failed to realize what happened. I, 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 God, I was going one direction with all of my friends of whom I later began to condemn. And God himself sovereignly by the spirit of Christ reached into my life and changed my outlook. That, that, that's saving grace. That's sovereign grace. That's what we've been talking about for the past several weeks. We didn't do anything to earn it. We freely receive it. And you say, well, what about obedience? Obedience flowed from that. I wanted to give my life to him, not just in faith, but in action. When we understand and remember, not just understand as Christians, when we remember how we were saved, that we weren't looking for God, but God came looking for us, that when the scriptures say, while we were still sinners, meaning while we were still sleeping with our girlfriends, while we were still lying and cheating, while we were still just moralists, Christ died for us. There's not a cleanup project that we start with indicatives. Indicatives are what God has done. That when we want to understand the gospel, and the only way to understand the gospel is to start with who God is and what he's done for us. When we understand that, not only does grace and the gospel begin to humble us and who, who we are as an identity, it humbles our witness because now we always make much of Christ. And so now when we go to our friends and we see them, we make much of Jesus. Even when we see their life is destructive, we know that true change happens by transformation, not just moral adherence or moral, uh, uh, ju- just moral obedience or just doing the right things just to do them without a heart that flows from love. Because we can get many people to change their behavior, but it doesn't mean that they understand the love of Christ. When we make much of Jesus and who we are in our identity, that humbles us. When we make much of Jesus and, and our witness, that humbles us. And just think about the implications of that. Our approaches to people who don't believe in God. Our approaches to people of other religions. That we should never, Christians, Christians, like, and I get it. I'm in the same struggle as you. We should never look down our noses towards anyone else. Never. Because of the gospel. We didn't do anything. God did everything on our behalf. And so how could we go to somebody else who doesn't believe what we believe and go, idiots? No. We can have compassion for them. We can be honest and say we think that's inconsistent with the scriptures. We can have dialogue, but never, never a sense of smugness or pride. Paul says, where's your boasting? Your identity should, the gospel has to bring humility in your identity. It it has to bring humility, even in your witness and how you share the gospel. And then some of us, some of us are going, that sounds really good. Like this, the the gospel, you know, you're right. You know, there's, there's the, the indicative, start with the indicatives, but there are imperatives of scripture. And in fact, you have many people, many people that are writing blogs after blogs after blogs over churches and saying too many churches are preaching and hanging out the gospel, hanging around the gospel and are preaching grace. And they need to be teaching obedience because what people need to do in licentious churches or young churches. And so someone could look at a church like Redemption Tempe and go, there's a lot of young believers. Don't don't tell them what they need to do. Just don't tell them what they need to believe in. Tell them what they need to do. Because if you want to get people to change, you have to major on imperatives. And I would say you do need imperatives. But imperatives is not how people change. Imperatives does not give us power. In the same way that the gospel transforms us, gives us humility in our identity as well as our witness, it also gives us humility and our holiness. Here's what I'm saying. Look at, look at Paul's words here. Um, when Paul continues to talk about the gospel and how we, it brings all people together, Paul says here in verse 20, 28, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law, from the law, 
And he says, or is God the God of Jews only? Or is he not the God of the Gentiles also? He says, yes, the Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised by faith. Meaning God is a God of all people who enter by faith. And then Paul says this. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold it. Here's a criticism Paul had gotten. First, Paul got criticism that he himself was letting anybody into the faith. And when Paul comes back and says, God is a God of one. There should be humility in your witness because God himself desired to save all types of people. And then Paul's also criticism was a thing called antinomianism. And antinomianism just means anti-law. That if you preach grace and that God does everything to order to redeem you and that you receive this by faith, then people won't obey. And basically not that people won't obey, but you're getting rid of the law. And Paul says, absolutely not. He says, does this faith now in the work and the life, death, and resurrection of Christ now nullify or, nullify or get rid of the law? He goes, absolutely not. Verse 31 again, he says, we don't overthrow the law by this faith. By no means, he says, on the contrary, we uphold the law. And, and many, of, many times we don't understand the difference um, when we hear law or we hear uh, uh, grace. Some of us, even as Christians, uh, would say that if we, since we're under grace, then the law means nothing. Um, there are some people who would believe that, okay, since God has forgiven me, right? God has forgiven me of all my sins, past, present, and future. That's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. That means I can go live a life like any way that I want, right? And he's going to forgive me. Like I can do whatever I want to do, right? I mean, that thinking is saying that God doesn't desire obedience. And you can say, well, you just said that the gospel is that God himself saves people and he doesn't make them change their behavior before they're saved. That's what I said. Um, and it's true. But what we know is is true is that once a person understands the gospel, once a person believes in God, they desire to obey out of fellowship. They desire to obey out of relationship. Jesus says it this way. If you love me, you will keep my commands. And there's some people on, on, on two sides of this. One side says, yes, preach imperatives. The other side says, preach indicatives. And Paul is saying it's both. Because what the gospel does is it shows you that your holiness is still not what you do. It is not completely up to you. That your holiness is something that is received by faith. Right? There's those passages that we read about in Levit- Leviticus, and Peter picks it up in Peter, and he says that, 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 be holy for I am holy. God makes us be holy. And we go, well, how can we be holy? And some people say it's by doing all the right things. That's why we have to uphold the law. That's why we have to say imperatives. And other people say, no, God did it all. We don't have to do anything. And what, what Paul is saying is something completely different. I want to unpack this for us so we can understand why holiness matters, why obedience matters in response to faith and always in response to faith. A couple of examples is this. When you think of a person, if you've ever been around someone who's a new Christian, there was something amazing about new Christians, meaning people who become Christians at 20, 30, 40, there is this vibrant life for God. And they do whatever, I mean, they, they'll do anything, right? They get rid of stuff that they're going to regret later. They, they, do all types, they do all types of things. And we love that as, as, as people who have been walking with Jesus, like, man, I miss those days. Well, here's what's happening there, is that they are getting the love of God first taste And then, therefore, their whole life is given to him. They don't just give their life to him and sign a card. They give their whole life to him. They want to obey him. They want to trust him. Many of us, we let the cares of this world choke out the word is what Jesus says. And so, therefore, we don't want to give our life to the Lord. 
And that's why when we hear, oh, he forgives me, I'll do whatever I want to do. No, new believers, we can learn from new believers because they're saying, because I love God, I want to give all myself to him because it's God working through me. And then you say, well, what's the relationship between the gospel and the law? Meaning, is Moses saying something different than Paul? And it's like, no, they're communicating the same thing in different ways. When you think about the law, the law in itself, the first purpose of the law was to show us that we needed a savior, that we could not live up to it. And now after the gospel, we don't get rid of the law, but the law now becomes a guide. In fact, in, other, in, other, um, in, Galatians, in Galatians, Paul uses language that the law is like a guide or it's like a tutor. Meaning the law, the law can point, but the law cannot get you there. If you think about a destination, right? We're in Arizona in the summertime. There's destinations that many of us want to travel to. So maybe you think like Hawaii. I don't know if you guys have ever been to Hawaii. Uh, 13 years ago was the first time I had an opportunity to go to Hawaii. And I got a chance to go. We had a bowl game for football. And the whole team was on a chartered plane. And, and I was just a freshman. And, you know, no one talks to freshmen. So I was sitting behind these guys, in front of these guys who were seniors. And I was doing what you're supposed to do in an airplane. I was listening to their conversation. And uh, as they were talking, one of the guys says, um, man, I hate planes. And he says, I wish we could drive to Hawaii. And the other guy goes, you're stupid, man. We can't drive to Hawaii. Man, that'd take forever. And I'm, th- and I'm sitting there going, because you can't drive to Hawaii. <laughs> it's like, don't you guys understand this, right? And, and, and if we have Hawaii as a destination, we, we can't drive to Hawaii, right? If you, look at, if, you can, if you think of the law, here's what the law can do. The law can say Hawaii is des- the destination. That's holiness. That's the destination. That's where we all need to get. That's God's character. We got to get there. The law can give you the directions. It can give you a map. But the law can't get you the power. It can't be the vehicle. And the relationship with the faith through the gospel is that we rest. We get on an airplane. We sit on an airplane. We trust in its ability to get us there. In the same way when it comes to holiness and it comes to obedience, that we understand that holiness is where God calls us. Obedience is something God calls from us. The way that it works in our life is that we have faith in the gospel. That is the power of God, not just to save us and make us right, but it's the continuous ongoing power of the gospel that works through us, that motivates our obedience. And so do we have good works? Absolutely we have good works. And it's the grace of God that begins to train us to renounce ungodliness and live upright lives. That's what, that's what Paul says in Titus. The way he says in Ephesians is the grace of God is in our life. And he says he created us in Christ for good works. Meaning there is obedience and there are words and holiness is something that God calls. But even in our holiness, it humbles us because our holiness comes from God through the gospel. That God starts a relationship with his people and it's God who continues it. And when Paul says we uphold the law, that we see and still as Christians, we live out the moral imperatives of the law. Because it's consistent with the character of God. But it's not by white knuckling it. Which Every time I use that, I'm like, it works for most of you. <laughs> it's, 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 but you get it. It's contextual. <laughs> it's, it's, it's not by white knuckling it, but it's the same way that we became Christians by trusting in the gospel that humbles our identity. So in who we are, we make much of Jesus. It's in the same way that we became Christians that we realize that we are humble in our witness And it's in the same way that we grow in our obedience and desire to obey as the same gospel truth. Amen? And when you have this and you see from start to finish in our identity and our witness and even in our obedience, it's about Jesus 
and it's always about Jesus, and we make much of Jesus, there's no need and no room for pride or boasting. Amen? Let's pray.